You're listening to the Bible 126 podcast. Okay, let's pray again. Father, we thank you for the evening. We thank you for this material. We recognize its difficulty. And yet, Father, we thank you that you have provided Jesus Christ to redeem us from this darkness. We pray, Father, that the lessons not be wasted. We pray, Father, that you would help us each to better understand the incredible extremes you've gone to on our behalf. And help us, Father, to be ever more fruitful stewards of the opportunities you're placing before us as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we're in session 20, exploring chapters 15 and 16, which are well known because they are the seven bowls of God's wrath. And uh, we're still, in the, uh, just by way of review, we are in the outline that Revelation uh, 1 verse 19 lays out, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things that shall be hereafter. Things which thou hast seen being the vision of Christ in chapter 1. The things which existed at that time, namely the seven churches, the most important part of the whole book for us. And the things which shall be hereafter, that is the things which follows after the churches. And of course, that's the area we're in. We've been sensitive all along to the heptatic structure, the basic one being the seven seal scroll, followed by the uh, seven trumpets, followed by these seven bowls, which we're now going to get into. And uh, so, each one having a little parenthesis between the sixth and seventh. And in the case of the bowls, we'd miss it. It's only one verse long. But you'll see it's just a little change of subject, a catching the breath, if you will, as we go. And uh, so, we have uh, finished the four, there are actually five parenthetical chapters where we met the seven personages that we looked at back then. And we just concluded a chapter on this that is a prelude to what we're getting into, do uh, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Chapter 14, laying the groundwork for what we're now into. It had seven angels um, prepare us, if you will, for the seven angels that have these seven bowls. We talked about the doctrine of endless pun- punishment, a very difficult area. That universalism, which is the general assumption by even many pastors, strangely, blots out the attribute of God's retributive justice. And it transmutes sin and just misfortune, turns all suffering into chastisement, and relegates the sacrifice of Christ to simply moral influence. The church has become a social institution rather than a, a declaration of the true gospel of Christ. And it makes uh, the sacrifice of Christ a debt, so to speak, due man, rather than an unmerited uh, boon from God. And so uh, throughout the Bible we see, of course, God's love and grace freely available to all who will accept it. The entire Bible is a record of the extremes he's gone to. And uh, too often the people's response is they don't want to love God and they want to run things their own way. So God has three alternatives. He can indulge it and allow it to go on forever, which means the cruelty, the sin, the pain, the suffering will continue on and on. Or he can, the other alternative is he can force man to love him, to be an automata, which is a contradiction in terms. You, you can't force love. Or the only alternative left to him then is to withdraw himself. And we can't imagine what that means. Uh, he's essential for our existence. So that leads to the concept of the two deaths. The physical death being a separation of the soul and the body. Most of us are sensitive to that. The second death, it's discussed in Jude chapter 1 verse 12, but also in Revelation 2. And it's going to come up again in chapters 20 and 21. Is The spiritual death is a separation of the soul from the spirit of God himself two deaths. And we can't imagine what that second one really is like. All these other things are really ways of trying to get that across to us. So, so it's all of me. We, it's we ourselves who choose whether God will judge us. It's we ourselves who will decide to either accept or reject His grace, love, and forgiveness. And it's we ourselves who choose everlasting life or everlasting death. And everlasting death is, is the same. Is, is, we'll get into more of that before the book's over. Okay, so we're now in the seven bowls.
in chapters 15 and 16. Chapter uh, 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And uh, this sort of... Uh, 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 the word filled up is just a way of saying it's, it's another way of saying it's finished. And I saw, as it were, a, a sea of glass. Remember, we saw that sea of glass earlier uh, where the saints were standing, the 24 elders were standing on it. I always, I'm always fascinated with that idiom of the, the sea of glass is sort of uh, modeled in the tabernacle and the temple with the laver, the brass laver, in which the priest washed in it. And that links with Ephesians 4 where it says, we are washed, now we're clean through water washing of the water by the word, where the word of God is, is made idiomatically, the, the, the washing. Well, that word of God is what they're standing on in, 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 the, in heaven. And I, I think the Holy Spirit's dealing deliberately in puns there. But the same sea of glass now is no longer something they're simply standing on. We see the sea of gla glass mingled with fire. Fire always suggests judgment. And then that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having harps of God. There again, standing on the word of God, if you will, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, um, or King of ages in some translations, and so forth. The Song of Moses, you can put that appellation on uh, a number of passages. We see that in Exodus 15, we see that in Deuteronomy 32, and so forth. It was, it was sung before the giving of the law in, uh, in Exodus 19. We, we, saw, we heard about the Song of the Lamb back in uh, Revelation chapter 5. Um, so obviously the redeemed are singing, and, and they, here they're singing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb again. Um, it's interesting to notice there's never any word about the achievements of the martyrs. You know, we tend to look at religious history and think of the great saints that willingly died, burned at the stake. for you know, People accomplished things for God. It's interesting, not that they're not rewarded, the, Lord, the Scripture makes that clear, but the real the victory here, the achievement here, is really the achievement of Jesus Christ, the achievement of God. And that's what's being celebrated in the book of Revelation from cover to cover. It's not the achievements of his, of his saints. No, they're, they're, they're all his achievements that were achieved through his saints. Anything we do is wasted. What we do in response to him is what counts. And uh, it's, it's also in, in, in embedded in the text in that sense because all the praise and all the glory and all the, the, the appellation is of the Lamb. And uh, we should never forget that. And, uh, okay, so you, the real question, the key question here is who is being unveiled in this book? It's not the Antichrist. You know, we always get into prophecy, we study about the Antichrist, you know, where is he? No, it's not the Antichrist, and uh, so forth. Um, the person that's being unveiled here is in the first sentence. This is the unveiling of whom? Jesus Christ, which God gave to whom? Him, Jesus Christ. And uh, remember that first sentence of the book. Anyway, moving on, verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And, uh, you know, it's, it's disturbing to really recognize and acknowledge the decline of the fear of God in our culture. When you think about how this country is founded by people who risk everything, their health and everything, to come here to found a country. Why did they come here? For religious freedom, to be able to worship God the way they wanted to. That's why they left. That's They're called pilgrims. And uh, uh, it's interesting, as you look at the early history of this country, um, even people who may not have been real believers nevertheless conformed to a culture that did hold God in reverence. They personally might have had some problems, but they yielded to the culture because that was what it was all about. And gradually over the years, it becomes more and more fashionable to uh, become more and more um, lacking fear of God. And uh, uh, even among believers now, you got to, the, the real problem in the church itself is people don't fear God. You learn about God in your studies. 
but you grow in your respect and reverence in your devotional life. And I'm sure all of us in this room, me included, need to somehow do more in our devotional life. And uh, uh, we need to work on that. We need to recognize that as a priority because that's what really, what it's really all about is a relationship with him, a personal relationship with him. And that, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, as one pastor said it once from a pulpit, God is not our buddy. And what he meant by that isn't that God isn't intimate and so forth, but some of us tend to treat him like a buddy. No, he's God. He's the ruler of the universe. He may be available to us with a 24-hour hotline. You bet. And he's there to be more involved in your life than you probably have any idea. It, is, it continually, even after, what, 50 years of this kind of thing, it just, it, it stuns me to recognize how responsive he is to our needs. Uh, candidly, uh, a couple days ago, I was just down. I was one of those down, I was, uh, uh, for, for a lot of reasons that are not important. In fact, I even acknowledged everything I looked at had, was going well. No problems. I go right through a checklist of everything. Medical, financial, everything's, no problems. Um, but for some reason, I, I was, and uh, as I do when I did it, I called Dan. I said, Dan, I need prayer. Shared with him a little bit. And we were prayer partners. And uh, a couple, of, and Gordon, a couple of people that are, you know, hey, I need some prayer today. So we, within hours, I got phone calls from across the world from people I haven't talked to for a long time that were so incredibly encouraging that first I was really quite overwhelmed with several things that happened. Then I sat back and I had a laugh. Why should we say, you know, <laughs> God, I was kind of down. God just picked me up by the scruff of the neck and from two or three quarters of the earth got encouragements of different kinds. And I sat back, you know, it's just, it's just, like, it's just like he was saying, hey, I'm still here, you know, I'm listening. So... No, God is... Uh, but anyway, the fear of God is where... I, I got a little distracted there. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord? Yeah. All the nations shall come and worship before thee. Do they do that today? No way. Not at all. Um, the immorality, the godlessness, and the injustice, uh, even in our own country, is just uh, increasingly conspicuous. And we go through a lot of psalms and a lot of quotes. We don't need to... We just, for thy judgments are made mad. That's all going to change. And after that I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of his testimony and heaven was opened. The temple is mentioned 15 times in the book of Revelation. Never mentioned until chapter 4. As long as the church is on the earth, he's indwelling the church. When the church is raptured, then the temple is again a topic. And uh, uh, so... Um, from then on, from chapter 4 on, it's dealing with the people on the earth that have a temple. Uh, a replica, actually, of, of the things that are in heaven. And uh, that's all explained for you in Hebrews 9 and elsewhere if you want to get into that. The seven angels came out of the temple having... The point, I'm, I, I, I didn't want, maybe I went through a little too quickly there. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, all those things are replicas on the earth that Moses was shown how to build, but they're replicas. The real Ark of the Covenant, the real temple, always has been in heaven. And we're, as we, we, we talked about that when we were at the last verse of chapter 11. But uh, in any case, seven angels come out of the temple. This is not the temple on the earth. This is the temple in heaven. Having the seven plagues, they were clothed in pure and white linen, having, on, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And uh, by the, strangely, there are some variant readings about the... Uh, Pre the uh, the the uh, linen being uh, precious stones. Uh, I won't go down that path. Just there are some manuscript issues there. Not not big deals. Anyway, having their breasts girded with golden girdles, and one of the four living creatures gave unto the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Wow, I can't even imagine that. Who liveth forever and ever? So this is the preamble. From here on, it gets rough. Um, and by the way, the word bowls, a quick comment, I'll, I'll stay with the word bowls. Uh, some of the translations have vials. What, they re what I think you should envision here, if you've ever seen some of the more orthodox ascensor, they typically have a, a, it's like a shallow 
plate with they use with incense and stuff in in it's a, in religious things. It's it's more like a censer. Uh, a, a shallow bowl is typically the way it's uh, the, the, the the words are used the same way. What these bowls are like, who knows? I can't visualize a bowl holding the wrath of God. But anyway, and the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. This is reminiscent of the time when there was so much smoke or cloud in the in the uh, in Solomon's temple. The priests couldn't minister. It was a darkness you could feel, so to speak. And uh, we notice here that the uh, uh, Aaron on the Day of Atonement was supposed to carry a censer or a bowl of coals from the altar so that he wouldn't die. He was told uh, on, on Yom Kippur, uh, he had to have that to avoid uh, dying. Uh, here, even the redeemed are denied access. God suffers alone for the horror of sin. And uh, now, something else to make very clear here, these uh, seven angels with these seven bowls make it clear that these judgments we're going to see proceed from God, not from Satan's enmity, not from um, man's mistakes. This is the wrath of God. And uh, that would make a great bumper sticker, Beware the Wrath of the Lamb. I made that remark before, and someone actually sent me some. I haven't put them on the car yet. But, um, the, in fact, the one that guy sent me said, Beware the Wrath of the Lamb, and had a lion's face on it. I kind of like that. That was kind of cute. But... Uh, Remember, we had seven churches that represented all churches. Um, seven means complete. So um, these, uh, these seven angels and the seven bowls are obviously idiomatically speaking of the completeness of God's wrath here. And there may even be some parallelism in what's going to transpire. It isn't necessarily chronologically sequential. But, uh, so we're now in chapter 16. This is the big one bowls on the kingdom of the beast. Each one of these judgments fall upon the kingdom of the, uh, the beast. And heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials or bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. And um, this is very analogous to the sixth plague in the e Egypt issue back in Exodus 9. In fact, one of the things you can do if you're so inclined is make a study, take the seven plagues, take the nine plagues in Egypt, well, ten with the death of the firstborn, and, uh, and you'll notice several of them link up rather interestingly. And uh, now these sores uh, are usually an outward sign of an inward problem medically, and it's also uh, certainly here. And uh, so it's, uh, it's interesting that God's injunctions in the Torah anticipate all of these. Here they're getting um, his wrath for those that worshiped his image. You go, you, you, when you first jump into the Bible, you see God again and again and again warn them not to worship false images. And uh, so this is the big climax of all that. We've even seen, even seen not only images, but devil worship, even in the house of God. And you can go back and look at some of those cases. Um, some people who try to see this think that they, they're getting a, 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 a sore, maybe from having taken the mark, that there's something like an HIV thing going on or something. And, um, uh, there was a plague of boils predicted back in Deuteronomy 28 that's never been fulfilled, and this certainly would fulfill those. But I don't think there's any need to contrive current images of what's coming. I think these things are, <laughs> are very special and not explainable away in terms of typical, uh, you know, physiological practice. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea, that, that, that was in the sea. And... Uh, so is this blood? Is it literal blood? Is it red tide? There's all kinds of debates among scholars, uh, conjectures. I wouldn't get any conjectures. Uh, I think that uh, all sea life in the region dies. And uh, it's that simple. It's, it's funny. We, uh, 
We, we, we can relate to this, I guess, because of the oil spills that we read about and some of the other ecological tragedies occurred with relatively minor case. Here we've got a major thing happening, and uh, it's obviously... Uh, but this is not... Again, I don't want to... I think all these conjectures you run into with some, some of the commentators miss the point. This is not a result of poor ecological planning. This is not a result of man's mistakes. This isn't a result of Satan messing around. This is God pouring out his wrath. And it's that simple. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. So we're finding, man, can you imagine living without water? Can you imagine mankind trying to find water when it's somehow, for whatever reasons, uh, unpalatable? Um, it's interesting that those that worship the beast cannot find anything to drink but blood. Do you see the irony in that? Do you see the irony in that where they have taken the blood of the martyrs and so forth? Now all they have uh, is, is blood. I, 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 what flashed through my mind was uh, I remember when Israel was in the wilderness complaining about the manna. They wanted some quail. So God gave them quail. So much quail they it was, you want a quail? He gave him quail. They were sorry they asked. <laughs> I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art, and wast, and shalt be, because thou hast judged this. Uh, the Greek leaves out the shall be. It's the it's it's existing one who was, and, uh, and the holy one, and so forth. There's no point in speaking of uh, the one that, as if he shall come. That's a, that's a translational issue. Anyway, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. <laughs> They're deserving. And the, the irony there is you know, very explicit. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. It's interesting to see hammered away again and again and again that the Lamb is worthy, that God is justified. There's never even a hint of that, this, uh, does, that, the, crime, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime all the way through here. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. Oh, boy. And the power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. You know, what's astonishing is all through this book, nowhere do the earth dwellers ever respond. They just get, it just gets anger and anger. In other words, they never repent. And that's really the point. That's really the point. Um, and they repented not to give him glory. That in turn justifies what God is doing. See, the sun worship is interesting. It's the earliest form of paganism involves uh, sun worship. It originated on the plain of Shinar. And the first leader, of course, was a guy by the name of Nimrod. We encounter him in Genesis 10. The word Nimrod comes from the Hebrew uh, verb marad, which means, in future tense is, is Nimrod, a, a variation of that, which means, his name means, we will rebel. The first world dictator was an Assyrian that uh, uh, founded the city of Babylon, as well as other things. In Genesis chapter 10, and Cush begot Nimrod, and he began, the way your Bible says, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. So far, so good. Verse uh, 9 is mistranslated. I'll come back to that. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, is what your Bible will say. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Or Shinar. This uh, translation is well known among scholars as being uh, not... Uh, it's misleading the way it's expressed. The word before really should mean in defiance of. Not bef when you say a hunter before the Lord, we think of kneeling before the Lord and being, being uh, that's a good thing. The, the actual language implies that he put himself before the Lord. That is, he's in defiance of the Lord. It's a subtlety, but it's a very profound one, a very, very critical one in this case. So we find that in uh, Josephus clarifies this for us. As just uh, these are expressions to show that in, in the in the uh, in the uh, rabbinical traditions they, it was, this was well understood. Josephus says Nimrod persuaded mankind not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to think that his own excellency was the source of it. 
And he soon changed things into a tyranny, thinking that there was no other way to wean men from the fear of God than by making them rely upon his own power. See, again, it's the attack on the fear of God. You'll find this in uh, Josephus' writings in Antiquities of the Jews. The Targum of Jonathan, another classic rabbinical source, is from the foundation of the world. None was ever found like Nimrod, powerful in hunting and uh, in rebellions against the Lord. This isn't authoritative. It's, just, it, it's, it's documenting the fact that the rabbinical perspe- perspective always has been an acknowledgment of the translational problem here. Uh, the Jerusalem Targum says, He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. There it is said, As Nimrod is the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. This is the rabbinical understanding from the ancient text. So it happens that your Bible, if you just read it straight, can mislead you. Nimrod was bad news. He's the first world dictator. Um, The Chaldean paraphrase of 1 Chronicles 1.10, which is another allusion here. Cush begot Nimrod who began to prevail in wickedness. For he shed innocent blood and rebelled against Yodhavavhe. And so the first global dictator, Nimrod, and the final global dictator will be also an Assyrian. Many people don't realize that. Micah 5 and Isaiah 10 go into this. And we talked about that when we were studying chapter 13. That's one reason I sometimes call him Nimrod the second because he's both the first world dictator and the last world dictator. Both apparently come from Assyria. So, let's move on. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch the men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. See, there it is again. Again and again and again, they, they, uh, the, more, the worse things get, they don't wake up, they don't recognize what the source of this is, or worse, they recognize it and, and oppose it anyway. That's the amazing thing to me about Psalm 2, Be, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that the kings of the earth take counsel and arms against the Lord and against his anointed. Um, I, can't, I can imagine the world rejecting God. I can understand the world not believing in God. I can understand those things. I can't imagine the world taking up arms against God. That's what, of course, Armageddon's all about. And, uh, but they're really ups- you know, men are upset, but they don't repent. Einstein made an interesting remark. He said, it's easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. <laughs> Pretty interesting insight for a physicist. <laughs> And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. That's actually the throne. See, this is, this, is where it's, uh, this is where this is all being directed. All of God's wrath is being directed at the kingdom of the beast. The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. Um, you know, it's interesting, back in Revelation 13, we had the remark made, who is able to make war with the beast? Remember? Remember that line? Well, this is the answer. You know who is able to make war with the beast? God. <laughs> and boy, he is. Um, he's made. And uh, this, this darkness is probably analogous to the ninth plague um, back there in Exodus 10. You may recall one of the, the ten plagues that that uh, was sequenced back there against Egypt was a darkness that could be felt. What on earth is going on? We're not sure. There's lots of allusions to it throughout the scripture here and there. Uh, There are unexplained examples of darkness in the history books. Um, In New England, central Wisconsin, Memphis, Tennessee, and Louisville, Kentucky, there have been reports in 1780, 1886, in the the turn of the century, 1904, 1911, uh, uh, unexplained darkness that they apparently couldn't account for. I can't make much of that. I just mentioned it in passing here. But what's really going on here also is spiritual darkness. And that's what we're facing here. We see that already. It's astonishing to me to see people who go through graduate training in science embrace a theory that is easily disprovable mathematically and uh, scientifically 
as being impossible, and yet it's not only embraced by a fringe, if you don't embrace it, you put your career in jeopardy in science. The whole theory of evolution is recognized by many, many experts as absolutely untenable. There's no evidence for it. It violates the laws of entropy. Uh, you can't explain the origin of life because you can't explain the origin of information. That's the Darwinists that puts the final nails in Darwin's coffin, so to speak. But evolution is, is, is the foundation of our society, and it's, it's, it's nonsense, and it leads to error. The whole field of psychology is frail because it's built on that uh, uh, unstable foundation. We look at politics. The whole concept of Palestinian state is a myth. You read Joan Peters' work, Alan Dershowitz, any of these people who have studied it carefully, it is a myth that has been promoted and then reinforced with terrorism that is bought by the media and the world. The whole idea that these people are somehow de uh, uh, denied and wronged and so forth, is, it's astonishing when you get into that. Islam, the whole, the whole foundation of Islam is, is, is strange. The Quran is full of Arabic errors. It's self-contradictory, and yet it's extolled as if it was some kind of equivalent to the Bible. It's opposed. It's, it's satanic. We get into Christian legalism. Watch the media in general. There's, 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 there's just no, there's no commitment to truth at all in our government or in our schools. Anyway, let's move on. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores and repented not of their deeds. See, they don't link the fact that this is from God and God's doing this because of their deeds. It's a denial of accountability, which, of course, we see everywhere. In fact, the whole concept of socialism is really a plundering of the productive by the unaccountable. The pursuit of most people, most governmental organizations is to slip away from any kind of accountability. But on an individual basis, we've got obviously the same thing going on here. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Now, it may strike you strange here in this spiritual panorama, we have a geographic reference here, a very strange one. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up. Why? So that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. It's very strange that, uh, that uh, this river, it's not that big a river, that's a barrier to the, the, the two of the largest uh, governments, in the, you know, India and, and, and China or whatever it's referring to here, uh, the river Euphrates. It was the cradle and apparently going to be the grave of man's civilization. Zechariah 10, Isaiah 11 deals with it. It's all through the scripture. It was the eastern boundary of the land grant to Israel in Genesis 15. When people say, want to talk about the West Bank, ask them, what river did you have in mind? The Jordan was never, you know, it's not the eastern boundary of the land grant that God gave Israel. And you do understand that the whole world is committed to the denial of the Abrahamic covenant. And as you, it's not just about land, that's the main issue that's going on right now, but every benefit we have from God derives from that covenant. You need to understand that. In any case, the, the, uh, the, there was the boundary, the eastern boundary of Israel, also the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. They could never deal with the Parthians and the, the people east of there. As powerful as Rome was, it couldn't crack that, that barrier. Rudyard Kipling said it in his ballad of East and West. Oh, East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet till earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. See, even Kipling here obviously is biblically literate. Now, what happens when the, the river dries up? I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So these are demon spirits of some kind. For they are the spirits of devils or demons, working miracles, which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So this is the draw. There are supernatural agencies that are bringing this about. Interestingly enough, they're being drawn, being drawn by, uh, they're coming out of Satan, the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, that's his the great world, you know, the world leader, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So these are demon spirits that are coming out of these, this so-called satanic trinity. And they are the spirits of devils working miracles. Oh, I was, one thing I find fascinating, um, 
When Dr. Mark Eastman and I uh, did a research project uh, which resulted in a book on UFOs and, and alien abductions and all of that called Alien Encounters, uh, obviously as we did that research, you quickly discover that these reports are, 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 are too bizarre to accept and yet too consistent to ignore that uh, of these uh, uh, alien beings, they're always in th one of three kinds. You have the little th men, three foot high, diminutive creatures. You have the plebeians, as they sometimes call them, or the, the, uh, 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 they're, they're typically six foot high, blonde hair, blue eyed, they look like people. And then you've got the third group, which are the power ones apparently, that are called the reptilians. The, the, the grotesque descriptions that you think came out of a grade B science fiction movie or something. But you always find that there's a well-established structure, in the literature at least, of these three different kinds. But the, the fact that some of the most um, extreme um, episodes are associated with these so-called reptilians fascinated me because they look like they're, they're grotesque kinds of frogs. And I couldn't, uh, couldn't resist the, the, the linkage between the, the frogs and the scripture here, the unclean spirits like frogs. Because in both cases you're talking about demons. Clearly what's going on in the UFO area is demonic and that's a whole other area. But uh, these, are demon these are obviously demonic. They are the spirits of devils working miracles. See, we're not ready to... We, we, we can't imagine these evil things doing miracles. Why? Because the restrainer is restraining them. The restrainer is removed. When the rapture happens, it's, uh, I, I think it, there's, there's a, he's restraining a lot more than, than we have any idea. But these spirits of the devil are going to go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to do what? To gather them together to a geographic battle that we're going to deal with here in a couple of verses. So now we, we've, so now we have a strange little episode here. Behold, I come as a thief. You, do you notice the change of subject? We have this dark stuff going on that's going to continue, but there's this little verse tucked in here as sort of a catch-your-breath kind of thing, sort of a pause, change of subject. Behold, who comes as a thief? Jesus. Jesus comes as a thief. Now, um, that's not addressed to us. Remember, Paul wrote to 1 Thessalonians 5, Verse 4, you are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. It's, he comes as a thief to those who are in darkness. Read 1 Thessalonians 5, that whole chapter. It's clear Paul makes two groups, the children of the day, children of the night. You are of the day, not the darkness. You're not in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief and so on. But these people are in the darkness, and to them he comes as a thief, as a surprise. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now the word garments here, really, the term really comes from the old English term for like a habit. Uh, it really, it, it's, it's a matter of living. And, uh, but here it's used in the sense of like idiomatic of his clothing. Okay, but then we can pick it up. Verse 16, and he gathered them to picking up the thought from the verse before the last. Before the parenthesis, if you will. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Har Megiddo is another way. Har being a tell or a mount, and Megiddo is a location you can visit. We visit it every time we go to Israel. Megiddo. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. This is where Jabin and 900 chariots were overwhelmed. This is where Gideon's 300 defeated the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the children of the east. This is where Samson triumphed over the Philistines. All this occurs there uh, uh, below Megiddo. Barak and Deborah defeated uh, Sisera, uh, and Saul was slain by the Philistines, as Zariah was slain by arrows of Jehu. Pharaoh Necho slew King Josiah. All this occurred. Uh, it's, a, it's a bloody place. The Saracens, the Christian Crusaders, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Druze, the Turks, all... Uh, had battles there. Napoleon, on his return from uh, from Egypt to Syria, uh, is there at Megiddo. In fact, he, he when he first saw it, he said, what a perfect place for a war. And uh, obviously, biblically literate, he recognized the significance of what he was saying. Um, then we get to the seventh angel. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. It is done. Notice, where do they pour out the... All these things have been poured out on man all the way through. Where is the last climactic 
bowl poured out on. Well, it says on the air. Well, what's the significance of that? Who is the prince of the power of the air? That's the title of Satan. So this, in effect, is being all these things are really aimed at his uh, throne, at his, 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 his domain, his kingdom. And, uh, but it finalizes here, it is done. The last reference to the term of temple in heaven too, by the way. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. That phrase repeats itself throughout Revelation. You can diagram the book as to where it occurs, but it's always a, a big catch thing here. Such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And uh, that's really saying something. Um, and there's a whole list of references that will be in the notes on earthquakes. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And the great Babylon came in remembrance before, uh, before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Whew. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. We're going to, of course, obviously take up the Babylon and there'll be two chapters on that in one of our subsequent sessions because um, there's a lot to be said about that. And there's also an opportunity for us to establish a what we might call a litmus test. In chemistry, we use that term. It comes from chemistry. Uh, it, a litmus is an indicator to tell you whether things acid or alkaline, whether the pH is below or above 6. But the term has become an idiom in our language. A litmus test is something that clearly... It's, it's black or white. It tells you, are you this or that, you see? Well, there's a chance here for us to conduct a litmus test having to do with Babylon. And we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 17 and 18. Because what, is, what the Bible says is going to happen will be very dramatic, and yet there's absolutely no evidence of it yet. And that's one of those wonderful uh, weather vanes to put up. An example of that, give you an, to better, a clearer, a clearer uh, understanding of what I'm getting at. Um, there was, a, in the 40s, it was very popular to... Um, oh, also, in those days, most Bible scholars were divided. Uh, the majority didn't take Israel's return as a nation, as something that ever happened in history. It was a, a myth, or a, they tried to deal with it symbolically or something. There was a small minority of conservatives who always took it literally, but fine. But when, when, when Hitler rose to power, it was very popular in those days among Bible buffs to view... Adolf Hitler as the Antichrist, the way he was oppressing the Jews and so forth. And there were a few guys, H.A. Uh, Ironside, M.R.D. Hahn as a couple, that said he couldn't be. They were very surprising. They said he, Hitler could not be the Antichrist because Israel was not in the land. And they were regarded as fringe, you know, extremists or something. Well, on May 14th of 1948, I remember this so vividly because it was early in my, my own uh, uh, biblical understandings. I can remember when Israel became a nation, that was a major milestone, not just for Israel, of course, for obvious reasons, but it was also a major, should have been even more, a major milestone in the debate because Israel was in the land. At that point, you would think that most people would go back to the books and rethink where their position was if they weren't taking the Bible literally. And some did, of course, but the debate still continues. But uh, I regard that, you know, that was sort of like a litmus test. Well, we got another one coming, and that's, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get to Babylon because there's, I think, some very interesting surprises beginning. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Wow, the world's changing. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. Now, what is a talent? Um, about 135 pounds by some reckoning. The Babylonian talent was a little heavier. Uh, at Beth Horon, we had these kinds of talents falling. You may recall that was in Joshua chapter 10. Uh, Josephus talks about Roman catapults during the siege of Jerusalem. Um, throwing uh, uh, stones the weight of a talent. But uh, while there's different debates as to exactly how heavy they are, um, the, uh, 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 they go all the way from 60 to 120, 135 pounds. So they're, they're, these are big stones. Um, notice this, though. There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. Can you imagine hail 
with 100-pound stones? I mean, let me ask you a question. If you, see, you, you know your Old Testament. What was the penalty for blasphemy? Stoning. What is being punished here? Blasphemy. It's interesting that the official form of capital punishment in Israel was stoning. It's even more interesting to realize that in the, among the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah and others, is that they predicted that the Messiah would be executed by crucifixion. It wasn't even invented when those people were writing. It was invented some 700 years later by the Persians and then widely adopted by the Romans. The whole idea that Christ was crucified was predicted is especially astonishing when you realize that in the writing, the culture from which those writings came, the form of execution was typically stoning. Not 100 pounds stones, but still stoning. Okay, so. Men are trying to reduce the population of the earth. You find all kinds of people that are concerned about that. It seems more appropriate that we should be trying to reduce the population of hell. And that's really what this is all about. But see, the point of all of this, I think, as we look at all of this, judgment cannot produce repentance. And that's one reason that preaching hell, fire, and brimstone doesn't bring people to Christ. It's a strange paradox because they do need to understand they're lost to understand the remedy that Christ represents on the one hand. And we shouldn't tiptoe around that. We should be very forthright on that. At the same time, hammering the judgment side of it does nothing do but, but turn people off. What always draws people to God is His grace, not His judgment. That's the other, there's the two sides of, a, of the same coin. What drew Moses to God was a burning bush. And what drew him wasn't that the bush was burning, it was burning and it wasn't consumed. And that puzzled him. And that caused him to climb that hill on Jabal Allah's whatever, to, to investigate. And the bush was an acacia bush, the thorn bush of the desert. And the thorn bush was a symbol of what? Sin. The fire is a sim symbol of judgment. So we had sin being judged but not consumed. It's actually Levitically, in, in, in the idioms of Levitical idioms, it is a symbol of grace. Grace attracted Moses, not God's judgment. And judgment was never intended to produce repentance. God changes hearts through His grace and His mercy. And understand grace and mercy are opposites. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. But they're obviously... <laughs> okay. This book that you have, that we've been studying, was sent to seven churches. It was given to change lives now, not drive them to fear from judgment. The judgment is there. It's described in an unvarnished way. But we need to understand this message, this collective message was sent to the seven churches to change lives now, to get the repentance now uh, before it's too late. Well, our next session will be the one I've been sort of setting up here, Babylon. And what I want you to do, I want you to read, of course, chapters 17 and 18, but I also want you to read at one sitting those two chapters and four more. Find about 40 minutes, it shouldn't take you longer than that, to read through chapters 17 and 18, and then also read Isaiah 13 and 14, and read Jeremiah 15 and 51. These six chapters, there are three pairs of chapters, you should read before the next session because it will show, give you some insights that will probably escape many of the people who are writing books on the subject. If you read all six chapters at one sitting, you will experience yourself how these things all interlock, very simply, just the use of idioms and so forth. And... Uh, it's a very, very interesting uh, issue, not only because it's important for you to understand it from the point of view of knowing your Bible and having some grasp of what's coming, but also you will be in a position to uh, recognize some things that will be occurring, I believe, in the press, in the media, over the next few years. There's some things happening that are going to catch many people by surprise, but if you know your Bible, it'll be even more significant than most people have any idea. So you want to take a look at that and understand it and uh, be able to evaluate, evaluate for yourself uh, what's coming down the, down the pike. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer.
We've been dealing with some pretty heavy stuff tonight. It's not comfortable to focus on God's judgment. We need to. It's real. It's uh, probably our most serious priority in our existence. Uh, but that's exactly what Jesus Christ is all about. But we need, let's not lose sight of what this is really unveiling, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. He's our refuge. He's our redeemer. He's our resource in every dimension. And one of the things we all need to work on is our devotional life. Uh, we, talked, we, we dealt with it here in a small way in terms of the fear of God. Um, that, 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 that's a small word for a big area. It's a, crucial for all of us to develop a personal relationship with the one we're, we're having to do with. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we just stand in awe as we begin to get a glimmer of what's coming. We do acknowledge, Father, that we have no idea how many ways we offend you. We have no, but only the smallest grasp of our fallen state. And yet, Father, we just, as we begin to understand the extremes that you have gone to on our behalf, we're breathless. We just thank you, Father for what you've done. We thank you too, Father, for the Holy Spirit that has brought us to this point in time because we know there's no accidents in your kingdom that we're all here right now hearing these things by your divine appointment. And Father, we would just pray that the lessons not be wasted. We do pray, Father, that you would draw us ever closer into a communion with you and with your Son, Jesus Christ. We just seek him, Father. We would just ask for you to increase our appetite for these things, for your word, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of him, that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you've placed before us. Help us, Father, to really understand what you would have of each of us in the days that remain, that we might be your instruments, your ambassadors. We would also ask, Father, that you would give us the courage, the resolve, the strength, the backbone, if I can use that term, um, to be your ambassadors when the opportunity presents itself, that we will be unflinching to declare the reality and the significance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we commit ourselves without reservation this night. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can see more podcasts on anchor.fm forward slash Bible 126. Also, there is a feature there where you can sponsor or make a donation to this page. Thank you and stay tuned for more episodes.